1: I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Dan Hoyle, who has a show, The Real Americans, which is playing at The Marsh in Berkeley through Saturday, February 25th. For more info on that, you can go to themarsh.org. The Real Americans has been playing around in different versions since 2010, premiered at the Marsh in San Francisco, was developed and directed by Charlie Varon. Is he still directing it? Yes. The Real Americans also played a couple of years ago at Berkeley Rep, and it's revised now. You traveled around the country in 2010 in a van for several weeks, gathered material, wrote this as a play, and then went back...
0: Last summer, yeah and got some updates did you go to the same people i did go to some of the same people but what we see in the new updated version is at the end we get those returns to some of the characters from the original show but a lot of what the new version is is new folks that i talk to because you never know you know and what i do i call it journalistic theater the most interesting person you're going to meet might just be at a gas station or while you're waiting for a bus or something.
1: And a lot of these are composite characters anyway, so you can just put the words in their
0: mouths. I wouldn't quite say that. The program note I have is, you know, the words tonight you're going to hear are often a mix of severals in my own in service of the larger truth of my experiences. So it's really important to me that what you're seeing is a reflection of what I experienced and not a distortion of it to fit my bent or agenda.
1: There's a framing device that you use which involves sitting around at brunch with three other friends in San Francisco.
0: Are those people real? Yeah, so they're sort of friends of friends, and they're sort of lightly satirical. You know, we have Pete who says, hey, you guys want some of this fruit compote? The pears are house-braised, and the syrup was sustainably raised on reclaimed industrial land by an alternative girls' school for children of the Taliban. And, um, you know, then we have Emily who's saying, Oh my God, I'm like so over it. I'm like so over everything these days. Like this SUV was honking at me and I was still crossing on a red light, but I'm like, Okay, your carbon footprint is twice mine. Back off. And then we have Marlene who's, Oh my God, yeah, no, you guys are so mean. And we have Dave who's, uh, No, no, look, uh, these people got the carbon plot from one of them, right? The economy's gone, it's been gone. So we sort of had these four different, very distinct voices that are sort of the stand-in for the liberal bubble around the country.
1: You live in Brooklyn now. The liberal bubble is
0: in full full swing in Brooklyn, too, I would assume. Indeed. It's funny because there's sort of a different—there's uh, a slightly different take, I think, in New York on things. I think in, in the Bay Area, people are always still curious and want to know what's going on around the rest of the country. In New York, some people are, but there's a larger percentage that is like, ah, whatever. I don't care. Just don't bother me. Well, this election now, everyone's sort of implicated.
1: One of the things that's happened between the election and today, this is being recorded on a Wednesday and will air on a Monday, and by Monday, we have no idea (laughs) what this country will be because things seem to be moving at a pace that's a little bit frightening, but the Trump administration is imploding now. And I wonder how many of those people who voted for him are having second thoughts. And
0: I I don't know. It's a good question. It's funny because I called back. um, This was a couple of months ago. Maybe it was last month, shortly after he was inaugurated and talking to some folks I had met in Texas who voted for Trump. And I said, you know, a lot of folks are scared. A lot of Latino folks are scared that they're going to get rounded up and deported, you know? And he said, well, you know, if anyone does that to my friend, I will fight them. I will fight them. And I said, well, who are you going to, let me, you know, but, and, and he just said, I'm going to fight them. I don't care. And this is a guy who's interesting because he picks up homeless folks all the time. He's a devout Christian. He picks up homeless folks. He picks up undocumented folks, um, he doesn't use that term. And he takes them to to hotels and buys them meals, and he has a deep Christian faith. And he's sort of trying to figure out how it squares with these specific policies that, that he voted for. Did you find people who think the ACA is different from Obamacare? <laughs> I know. I've been reading all those stories now. You know, that wasn't a question that I was asking, but, you know, when that type of story comes out, I feel like, yes, good. These are the things that people need to be understanding. I think there's a conception that everyone sort of thinks about the world politically in sort of politically engaged areas, but most people don't. You know, as As one of my characters says, you know, it's like, oh yeah, my sister's brother was like, yeah, I just voted for Donald Trump because he has like the hot hand. I'm like, for once, could you not make a major life decision with explaining it with a sports analogy? (laughs) And it's like, well sure, but so many people don't view the world through these these sort of political lens. Well, what lens are they viewing it through then? First of all, a very kind of localized lens. You know, I mean, I talked to several black folks who said you know you know man you want me to just just pull the lever for the for the democrat every time man like you know like 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 why I, I don't know you know I, I met black folks who were voting for Trump because they just feel like they didn't see the connection between federal policy and their lives in Harrisburg Pennsylvania or Clarksdale Mississippi the frame that a lot of people have is this kind of mix of of things that they've seen on TV, things that they've heard, things that folks have talked to them about, you know, I've been saying for a long time I think the the unraveling of daily newspapers is having an effect, you know and 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 the rise of Breitbart and alex jones and and stuff like that, I think you really saw that this election cycle uh, in an interview that
1: popped up in the press kit I got for the real Americans. You talked about the serious decline in income and education in white working class America. How much of that did you see on this trip compared to the previous trip? And also, were they spouting fake news?
0: Yeah, that's a good question, Richard. Thanks for asking that. Yeah, so the difference between when I first went out and now is that when I first went out, I would be, you know, trundling along in my van in these very rural places where you basically get Christian radio. Right-wing radio and country music, and so then I would stop and I'd be hearing Limbaugh or Hannity, and then I'd stop and talk to people, and they would sort of be saying the same things. This trip, it's like now people are talking about the the farther out stuff, you know, the the Alex Jones, the Breitbart, the real kind of more far-fetched conspiracy theories. It's actually on both the left and the right, you know. I mean, I was in Humboldt, California. And folks are saying, oh, yeah, well, we know that Trump just ran because he was broke and Hillary paid him to run so that he would lose. And I just think, like, (laughs) you know, it's just not that simple, guys. But I think there is a void there. And I think there's this, you know, social media has just made this stuff go like wildfire. I mean, the the wildest story, the, the most shared article on Facebook was that the Pope endorsed Donald Trump, which was just complete fiction. But... If it gets shared, is it real? I don't know.
1: You've got the most bizarre one, which was the Pizza pollard story about Hillary Clinton. And it's like 10 seconds of thinking about it, and you realize this is the most ridiculous
0: thing I've ever heard. And yet it got shared how many times? Right, right. It's like one of my characters says, you know, it's like people went to college for a little bit, so that they like the idea of critical thinking, but they didn't actually learn how to do it and i think that there is this desire and it's it's always from people who are who are intellectually curious it's not the people who are checked out and they're they want to know more and they want to uncover what is the true story what is the real story and the real story is sometimes like well there was an appropriations committee and they had budgeted this much but then there was a senator in this swing district and he had you know, it's this kind of long, complicated, maybe somewhat boring story as opposed to, hey, you know, there's a child sex ring that you're not hearing about. That sounds, whoa, I want to get to, you know, that sounds like exciting and, 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 and ooh, I can uncover it myself.
1: About 10 years ago, you went to Nigeria. It was part of a um, Fulbright scholarship, and uh, you came up with a show, Ting's Day Happen, and of course, as we follow what's happening in America, a number of people say we're sort of moving away from American democracy towards something else. Are you seeing any parallels between what you saw in Nigeria 10 years ago and what you're seeing today in the U.S.?
0: I think there's still two very different political ecosystems. But you know, I, I spent a couple of days while I was living in Nigeria uh, shadowing uh, some journalists and we would go around, we'd go to the airport, and we did an interview on a tarmac with uh, a local governor. And then somebody came in with a bag of money and said, you know, give this to the journalists, make sure the news is sweet. And, you know, it was like pretty clear what was going on there. And people in Nigeria know that. They know that not entirely, There, you know, there's this day and there's there's some publications that are sort of working at a higher level of fact authentication. But generally, people understand everything is kind of somebody's mix of a take, and maybe somebody is is sort of pushing something their way. And I think that the mainstream media often gets bashed in the U.S., and there are a lot of shortcomings. But it is true that there has been a methodology that has been developed over 150 years coming from the penny press of aspiring to objectivity and having a way that you can get a lot closer to objectivity than if you just kind of sling in from the hip. And I think that is one of the things that's at stake and that is being eroded right now. Um, and, and that's dangerous, I think.
1: Well, I think we see it in the DeVos story of the Secretary of Education. I mean, it's not hard to see that she bought her way into the cabinet in a way that I don't recall I mean I'm sure that it's happened before in different ways but it seems more blatant now and obviously the fact that Trump did not divest himself of any of his holdings that he refuses to release his tax returns this is something new
0: well it's an interesting thing because when I was traveling around you'd hear two things all the time you know say yeah okay so Trump he he wants to do all this stuff and he's kind of crazy but at least he's not a politician and then the other thing they would say is, you know, oh, no, he he can do a good job. I mean, he already has all the money he needs, so he he's not going to take any money. And so now it's interesting because that sort of idea of let's put in somebody who's not a politician, and the notion that being a politician is a is a dirty word, which. I don't know there's any other industry where you're saying, wow, this person has 25 years experience. Well, we should disqualify him from the job as opposed to this person who's never done it. Well, he will automatically be better. But that logic is now being put to the test and we'll see what happens. But I'm hoping that that notion that, oh, just put in an outsider and they'll know what to do will kind of get shown to be a little bit (laughs) too hopeful. Did
1: you ever challenge these people or did you feel that your job as a playwright kind of set you into just listening rather than trying to get responses?
0: That's a good question. Um, So uh, initially I would just listen and the longer I would travel and certainly this summer when I went back, I would push back on things because I knew that my audience would push back on stuff, you know. We're doing all these talkbacks after the shows for this run, and one of the people we're having uh, is Arlie Hochschild, and she talks a lot about getting somebody's deep story. And I think that is something that I've often tried to do too, and i and I found when you throw some facts back in somebody's face, they will kind of curl up and react and get defensive. But if you speak from your own experience, you know, I'd often say – You know, they say, well, I mean, Obamacare is just the worst thing ever, don't you think? And I'd say, well, you know, actually, my wife got denied three times for health insurance off of pre-existing conditions that were ridiculous, such as she had had a concussion two years previously. Obamacare was passed. We finally were able to get uh, health insurance. And then two years later, we had a baby. Uh, Without having that, we would have had $70,000 in hospital bills and you know, before Obamacare, health care costs were the number one cause of personal bankruptcy. So, so I don't know, for me, it's been pretty good.
1: You as a, an independent
0: contractor doing shows. <laughs> right, right. So I, I would say that to, to folks and they would say, oh, okay, you know, or, you know, it's interesting, this, this, this guy in Texas and he's saying, you know, it's just not normal, you know, basically say homosexuality is just not normal. And I, I kind of hung around and I said, well, you know, actually, you know, I have family members that are gay, you know, and they're really regular folks, you know. And he kind of said, yeah. Then he thought about it and he said, well, I'll tell you what, something. I have an adopted daughter and she's gay. And and he had this whole other backstory, you know. So, But does that change?
1: How he views, I mean, what he said originally to you, and then he gives you this backstory,
0: right? Um, no, I mean, you know, we're we're I, I think it's important that we all allow ourselves to be w- works in progress. I mean, you know, as I say all this, I, I know there are folks out there who are just scared and they feel like their safety is threatened by Trump's administration. and And I understand that, you know, the refugee ban. Happened. I went out to JFK Airport in New York uh, because I just felt like not only is this cowardly, it's geopolitically inept, and it's un-American. And I think we need to keep challenging the administration on things that it does that threatens the foundations of democracy and American values. But at the same time, I think when we're talking to folks that are still trying to figure it out, it's good to to stay in some sort of a conversation. There is a time in which conversation doesn't work, you know, but when you can have a conversation, try it, you know. And I, and I tell folks, people say, well, you can do that because you're, you're a white guy and they're not going to mess with you. And I say, well, actually, you'd be surprised. A lot of folks, they have black friends. They have Latino friends. You know, they know somebody that's gay or a family member is gay. So it's not like they... They don't ever have interactions, and most of these folks are not going to be, you know, coming after you. You know, certainly we have seen a rise in, in hate crimes, and and that's really troubling. But I, I think there's a role for all of us to play in continuing to uh, to get out and talk to strangers.
1: Dan Hoyle, you brought something with you. What do you have there?
0: Yeah, this is sort of the update of some of the the stuff. Yeah, I guess I could read a little bit. To give folks a sense there's this guy I met in in Colorado and uh, he says yeah you know we put our house in the market the month before it all caved and uh moved out here to Colorado my wife's from here and and the house sat and it sat and it sat and uh I finally told the bank to take it you know and I put everything in that house dude floors roofs cabinet I put every every dime I had into it and uh I lost it all you know uh and then I was cutting concrete, That's what I do, and a, and a saw fell on me, pretty much career ender, but uh, I got three kids, dude, so stocking shelves at Safeway. I mean, I wasn't excited about any of the candidates, you know, I mean, Trump might start World War III, and you know, Hillary, uh, couldn't do it, dude. I mean, her husband, on her, and she took it. I don't know, my wife would have skinned me, dude. And Bernie, I mean, I was curious, you know, but not sure he could make it the whole nine yards, you know. By noon, he's got bedhead. It's like, come on, dude. Yeah, so I ended up voting for Trump. I (laughs) I think we need to build a wall, dude. I got nothing against Mexicans. I work with them every day. I'm talking about someone coming over here and putting together the complete package, taking out the electric grid, you know. I'd like to know who's coming to this country. So that's one of the new characters, that I've been working into the show.
1: How close is that to, I mean, that is that a composite or just someone you actually met in Colorado? So
0: that is, yeah, so that is a couple folks, both people I met in Colorado, but it's pretty much mostly one guy, and then it's the guy who's, like, pretty similar to him. So, but, yeah, most of that story is one person. The new stuff, often, it's just generally this conversation that I had with somebody, you know.
1: Are you always attaching the physical life of the person to the words
0: no so i will sometimes take a, a walk or a posture of one person and a um sort of a, a vocal quality of somebody else um you know it it has to come together and feel like a real person right. so that's really important to me you know um that people feel like they're meeting real people and i and i generally think audiences do feel like that and I, and that's important because the general gesture is I'm trying to, the audience gets to be me or the person, me, you know, back when I was having these experiences. And I think that that is a really dynamic setup when it's done right, um, that theater kind of takes on this, uh, this first person sort of journalistic feel where you, you are in the driver's seat that I was in. And you're watching me, the person who had these experiences, recreate them.
1: Well, and specifically, that comes up in a dinner segment, which I guess is from the original show uh, with, I, I couldn't tell, maybe he's a reverend and his family.
0: Oh, yeah, right. That was actually just just a, a family that's that's quite religious. Yeah, and he's uh, he's talking to me, you know, and he's talking about evolution, and, and we get on that. And he says, uh, yeah, oh, what's hanging you up? Evolution. Dan, take the giraffe. They got a itty-bitty head and a long neck. How come when they're eating grass on the ground, they get scared and pull their head up fast, they don't pass out like we do? They got a gimmick in there. They got a check valve and auxiliary pump. No, 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 no. Scientists outside of academe have proven this. Information from a genetic source must come from a more intelligent source. It cannot go from lower up to higher. simply cannot.
1: His son comes on
0: to you later on. Was that real? So, yes, yeah, so this is... Wow, Richard, you're taking apart the whole—you're the, whole, the, the, the <laughs> we're, you're really doing the behind-the-scenes here. So, yeah, there was that one family. It was another family that I also went to church with and I also had a meal with, and he came on to me. I got propositioned twice by two guys who were not gay uh, in their understanding of themselves. Um, they just like to fool around. And, you know, somebody asked me when I did the show in North Carolina last spring, they said, well— I mean, duh, you're a guy in San Francisco with a van. Like, of course you'd get hit on all the time. At first I sort of laughed and thought, oh, yeah, I guess that made sense. But then I thought about, well, not necessarily. I mean, there is a a long line of kind of hippie guys, I would say. That's sort of the tradition. I don't know that there's a long tradition of, you know, gay men driving around the country from San Francisco looking, you know. So that was kind of I had to sort of push back a little on that. Well, of course, they wouldn't
1: necessarily know that uh, even a place like the Castro is becoming less gay because people are being forced out by the (laughs) rents. Right,
0: right, right, exactly. (laughs) Dan
1: Hoyle, I'm going to go back and look at your career. Now, your dad, Jeff Hoyle, was one of the founders of Pickle Family Circus along with Bill Irwin. What kind of relationship did you have with a family that basically
0: worked in the theater? (laughs) The Pozzonis will skin me if I don't correct you and say. So my dad joined, I think, like the second or third year. So he wasn't one of the founders, although, yes, he and Larry and Bill, once they all teamed up, I think the circus had something really surging there. But in terms of growing up in the theater, I mean, yeah, it's funny because I, I grew up, you know, my, my dad, people always ask, well, like, what, you know, what was it like? You know, people ask crazy stuff like, "Oh, your dad just like doing coke all the time?" And like, I'm like, well, "What? No. I, I, my dad was very much a, a working actor, and I always understood this as being a, a a job that you could really pay the bills with. And and you know, knock on wood, I've been able to and and starting a family. So it was very much regular to me. You know, it was, it just seems. Like, it it didn't seem exotic to me because it was a job that my dad took really seriously and and was able to support a family doing.
1: Well, Lorenzo Pisoni actually was involved directly with it as a very little kid, were you?
0: Not really. My brother was, and yeah, in Lorenzo's show, Humor Abuse, and now the film, which is fantastic, which I saw, I think, last fall when it was starting to hit festivals and anyone who... Wants to either experience or re experience the pickles and, and learn about it in a new dimension, you should check that out. So, yeah, I was, I sort of had the best, I think, because I was a little bit younger. So, I would just kind of like walk around in my Bermuda shorts and shirtless backstage as a five year old. And, you know, we'd hit all these funky, gnarly, cool, you know, Northern California, Oregon towns. And I guess I would run on the stage or. Michael Ota would bring me on the stage for a curtain call when I was 2 or something but I was mostly just kind of a, a fly on the wall. How old were you when Jeff left? Gosh, that's a good question. I was probably I don't know 4 or f- no because I did a tour when I was 5. I don't know, I mean he left and then he did a couple more like special seasons. I I just remember he, you know, he started working a lot at Berkeley Rep and ACT kind of into the middle 80s and then the 90s. Um, and so, yeah, the, it shifted away from circus life to more like rep theater life. And and he would often, uh, he would go on tour with his shows too, which was always cool. You know, he'd bring me back something. I, this last year in 2016, um, I had I was lucky enough to bring my little family on tour because I had a, a baby, Winston, who's who's now fifteen months old, but we were able to go to Portland, and my when he was three months with my wife, and then we went to North Carolina, and then we came out here, and so it was really fun to travel with the family. Um, you know, Winston is obviously too young for that to for that to ever be a memory, but it's it's a real great joy to 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 perform on the road with your whole family. Did
1: you have any thoughts of performing while this was going on?
0: You know when did I you know I was trying to remember when I sort of thought oh I want to be a performer I want to be an actor you know I was always doing plays in high school and there was a couple big moments for me I guess when I went to Northwestern um and I was deciding whether I would do kind of the the drama program or do something else and I and I felt a little bit alienated from the drama program because it was kind of fairly straight and just kind of you know people doing these th- sort of canonical plays. And, and I was always interested in in the sort of theater of the streets, you know. So I started getting on the, the train as a Chicago into Northwestern and going downtown to Chicago and hanging out on street corners late at night. Um, the first ever little mini piece I did was about a, a, a basketball court, a pickup basketball court, where I was the only white guy. And I would play basketball, but then I was sort of like hanging out with people and started creating these characters and tell the, telling that story. And then um, in Each and Everything, a show that I've been touring as well, uh, I, I detail sort of hanging out with the corner boy drug dealers that lived in the, in the Rogers Park neighborhood that I lived at for a little while. Um, and that sort of started to really like, yeah, if I can bring these stories that people aren't having access to in the theater, now things are in a way things are changing because you know now there's all these tv shows that are bringing people into these different worlds and theater is never going to be able to create that sort of level of spectacle and verisimilitude but what it can create i think is when it's done well is that act of common imagination it's that non-passive aspect of theater where audiences really are sort of part of the action which i think can be pretty cool
1: You did a double major at that point. So you really didn't know. And then you, out of the blue, got a, did you apply for a Fulbright?
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So I, so in my, between my junior and my senior year, I won this crazy thing called the Circumnavigators Club grant, which is amazing. The Circumnavigators Club, uh, bless them, gave me this grant to go and travel around the world to circumnavigate. And uh, I was looking at American companies in developing countries and that became the material for my first solo show, Circumnavigator, and that went well. And then I did uh, Florida two thousand four, The Big Bummer about volunteering for the very unhistoric John Kerry for president campaign in <laughs> Florida. In the meantime I had applied for the Fulbright and I got it and I yeah, and I left in, in two thousand five.
1: And while you were there, you were just picking up material and doing whatever.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was I was really trying to figure out what's going on, you know, going down um, into the creeks where the, you know, spending, you know, I would arrive at just these villages and say, hey, I want to spend the night with you guys for like three or four days. And they'd look at me like I was crazy. But, you know, I didn't have a way back. So they would let me hang out and, and I would get to know sort of what's going on in the creeks. And then I would go to the... Expat oil bars and, and yeah, doing what I call the journalism of hanging out.
1: Had you ever thought about putting the stuff in books rather than performing it?
0: You know, I've written some, I've written um, some essays, some, you know, some journalism, um, and people ask me about that. And I've had some people say, well, why don't you write a book? And, and, you know, I, I would like to at some point. Partly the problem is I, I don't have the time. <laughs> and then I, I don't know the, the for me i really respond to the immediacy, immediacy of having to create something show a director show a workshop audience you know i i just need that constant that constant feedback i don't do well as the lonely writer the uh first show i mean you're by
1: yourself you've never done a show before how did you get on stage that first time, the very first time, or was it just you got a a gig through college or something?
0: When I came back to the Bay Area in uh, 2003, I met Charlie Varon in the lobby of the Marsh Theater, and said, "Hey, you know," and I had been working on this this piece, Circumnavigator, as a as a independent study, my spring semester in college. And I said, hey, I got this stuff, you know, like, can can you, I don't know, I heard you're you're kind of the uh, solo show guru, like, and so we got together and I remember I ran I ran the whole show through kind of breathlessly and was like, oh, do I got anything? And he was like, yes, 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 you do. <laughs> and I was like, okay. I mean, it was like literally like an hour and 20-minute audition or something, you know, I was like, and, and we started working. Yeah, it's now we've been working together for like 13 years and the marsh is really incredible and in that it has a system in place for you to workshop material, show it at early stages, show 20 minute version, show full length version, keep workshopping at the audience's understand process. Um, the schedule, uh, it's not like they book, you know, 18 months out so they can make decisions really quickly. I- I've performed dozens of theaters around the country. Um, and and I keep coming back to the marsh because it's just the best place to create work and, and, and audiences just really appreciate the craft. Well,
1: there's a former KPFA person named Lisa Rothman who just went over there, took classes with Charlie, and soon she was on stage.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's and that's that's the beauty of the marsh, you know, and it, it allows people at all different levels to 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 come in and, and work on their craft, you know? And that's, that's what it's all about.
1: Dan Hoyle, you do these shows, and I know that your dad began doing Pickle Family Circus and Bill Irwin and Lorenzo Pisoni. All of them eventually branched out and did acting of other people's roles. What about you?
0: Yeah, I've been doing a little bit of that in New York. Yeah, I mean, it's always fun to, to, to do that as well. I'm always pretty open to it, you know, schedule permitting. I've done some auditions, you know, sometimes I just friends just sort of ask me to, to to do stuff. So yeah, so I'd be, you know, it's always fun to take a break and to not have it all be on you. I've also just written some plays for other people too. I like being able to sort of try on different hats. How about film? Yeah, well, you know, just just <laughs> waiting for that uh, that HBO special. I'm always open to as my dad says i entertain any and all offers you know and and yeah i mean it's always a question of time and priorities and you know making a living and all these sort of different factors that that go into it but provided that those things line up i'm always i'm always open to it
1: well bill Irwin told me he was here for the um uh his show on um beckett it's like the only way you can do a show like beckett is to go down and do a tv show like legion down in uh Los Angeles, and that's how you make your money. It's a day job.
0: Yeah, I've been lucky enough that I mean, I'm coming up on 400 performances of The Real Americans. Um, I've been lucky enough to be able to make a living doing that, and it it's interesting because sometimes even the the smaller theaters don't necessarily pay less. Sometimes they they pay more. Some of these big theaters, they have these high overheads, and and they sort of, all the money, the high ticket prices are not necessarily going to the actors, they're going to the the lobby sometimes. So, I perform at big places and small places, and and you know very shiny places and very funky places. And and so far, it's it's able to all work out.
1: Dan Hoyle, do you anticipate in a year or so going out and doing more interviews for a revised show?
0: Well, I'm thinking about doing a doing a whole new show. Um, and one of the things I'm interested in is sort of the folks around the country that are either resisting or creating alternatives to the Trump worldview, especially in places where that worldview is dominant. The Real Americans is kind of this exploration and this inquiry into why are the majority of folks in small town and rural America sort of thinking this way. And I've thought about sort of doing the flip of that and checking out the, the sort of the outsiders, the oddballs and the, and the resistors. That research might be happening soon, we'll see.
1: One thing I've noticed is that trying to talk to any of these people on Facebook is a silly experience. But a lot of people have said that if you want to convince someone, you need to talk to them one on one. And you have to do it in a way that treats them with respect.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, Ob- it's funny, Obama's final speech. There, I had a couple of friends texting me be like, did he see your show, dude? Like, he's like, totally cribbing lines like you know he had that line you're sick of arguing with people on the internet go out and go out and talk to a stranger in person or you know the more we we retreat into our into our enclaves you know we if we just if we just blame everything on this on these immigrants and, and, and then we just retreat into our enclaves and we stop talking to each other and my friends are like wow it seems like Obama got a sneak look at your show but I think he's right I think that the lesson of his presidency that some people draw as well You know, diplomacy, decency doesn't always work, but it's hard to measure that, you know, because I feel like all the results aren't totally in.
1: You'll be bringing The Real Americans back to Berkeley after this, or what are you going to do with The Real Americans? You're still working off a script.
0: The new stuff, because I was just literally writing it uh, the last couple of weeks, and I, I wrote this new rap, which I'm thankfully off book for, but which, you know, I was writing up this whole week. You know, it's (laughs) like, I think we're going to add a couple dates in Berkeley, actually, because it's selling out. And there's, knock on wood, uh, a strong possibility that it'll go to D.C. this year, Washington, D.C. And it's played a lot of cities, but it hasn't gone to the Capitol. I think that will be a really cool opportunity.
1: The Real Americans plays through this Saturday, February 25th, that the Marsh in Berkeley, may extend directly from that. For more information, you can go to Marsh.org. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.